Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron, Principal of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of politics, business, economics, and demography. Our topic today, Brace for Impact, America's Trust Collapse. Today we're going to explore what our firm considers one of the most important trends impacting the United States, which is the apparent move of American civilization from high trust to something less than high trust. And it's very easy for all of us not even to think about trust as a defining feature of American civilization. But we would argue that trust is the defining quality that makes America, America. In thinking about one of the iconic musicals that defines American popular culture, it's The Music Man. And of course, The Music Man centers on a character who's a huckster, who's trying to deceive and defraud some unsuspecting American Midwesterners. But what makes The Music Man so compelling is that there are these wonderful, generous, giving Americans to take advantage of. So even though the American story is complex, there is an innocence, there is a goodness at its core. And that goodness really is born of this quality of trust. And heaven forbid that the country loses that quality of trust, it really changes everything, not only the commercial structures that support American dynamism, but the public square and the nature of our interactions with each other as citizens. And if you go to our website, baronpa.com, in the library section, the written version of this topic, our political risk brief titled Berserk, The National Consequences of Mistrust, features an image of a cargo rail car transiting Los Angeles. And as some of you may have seen, there are just packages, thousands and thousands of packages littering the tracks. And that's the aftermath of a mass looting that took place of consumer goods that were being carried on those rail cars. And that image really did shock the conscience of the nation. Governor Gavin Newsom, Democrat of California, described the scene. My frustration with this in particular is the images look like a third world country. So that is our topic today, this very pivotal question of decline in American trust as a defining feature of the civilization and the implications for business, for politics, for the public square. Joining me as always, my colleagues, Johnny Fluger, chief strategist. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here talking about another optimistic topic. Doom is our brand. And Jeremy Furchgott, director. Great to be here. Thank you, Jonathan. I want to begin by exploring the self-conception that Americans have of the nation and of themselves. And I think Interestingly, a non-American, an Englishman named Paul Johnson, of course, the great historian, I thought he captured it brilliantly in his magisterial history of America. And he has this wonderful, wonderful description. And he describes America in the latter half of the 19th century as huge and teeming, endlessly varied, multicolored and multiracial, immensely materialistic and overwhelmingly idealistic, ceaselessly innovative, thrusting, grabbing, buttonholing, noisy, questioning, anxious to do the right thing, to do good, to get rich, to make everybody happy. And I do think in that incredible description does capture how the nation has thought of itself for much of the last century, if not more. And that we see evidence of changes of that character, the changes of that goodness, I think has the most profound consequences. I want to turn to you, Johnny, at the outset of this conversation to talk about what evidence do we see of this shift from high trust to something else? What makes us think that this trend is unfolding? I think one of the headline-grabbing data points that we have is the record amount of violence and even more broadly than violence, unruly behavior 
by passengers on commercial aircraft. It seems that every day now there is a story that goes viral about a beatdown on a passenger airplane. I think what we're seeing is a deterioration of trust in a circumstance that is more acute than most, which is to say, when you are a passenger traveling on a commercial aircraft, you really have no control over what's happening to you. Your well-being, your arrival at your destination is in the hands of, you hope, very well-trained and well-regulated pilots and mechanics. And I think there's something about that particular setting that's separate than just fights over the federal government's mask mandate on aircraft that is giving rise to these incidents. I think it's kind of a fishbowl lens or microscope under which we can see a deterioration in trust. So, Johnny, I think the airline example is an excellent one, both regarding the incidents of violence you cite, and, of course, we've seen an increase from 2020 to 2021 of something approaching 600% in situations involving unruly passengers. But there's also the question, which I find fascinating, of emotional support animals. And can we rely on our fellow citizen to be honest, to not only meet the letter, but the spirit of the law? And I think there was a perception, well-founded, that the emotional support animal allowance for people on planes was vastly abused. And it got to the point where there was a United Airlines flight out of Newark where someone attempted to bring a peacock on a plane as an emotional support animal. I think there was also a ferret at one point. Well, there was a whole range. There were comfort turkeys. There were uh, possums. There were snakes, spiders. You know, again, a veritable Noah's Ark of animals, as we review in the written political risk brief. And that abuse led to a changing of the rules governing emotional support animals to deal with this you know, menagerie that was showing up on passenger flights. And again, so it's to say not only is there the violence you cite, which is something that I think people recognize, maybe they don't appreciate fully what has happened, but also people abusing the system, taking advantage, sort of skirting the rules. And America's success in a significant part has been that not only do I follow the rules, but I can rely upon you, my fellow citizen, to follow the rules. And when that begins to come apart, it can unravel very quickly and America no longer is America the first world country that we know. It could become something quite different. Jeremy, as our resident car junkie and transportation expert, I know that you've been looking at the transportation sector to see if the trend we're discussing, this declining trust, prevails there as well. I want to note that the number of road fatalities in 2021 was the largest number of projected fatalities in a similar time period since 2006. And I don't think that's just about increasing miles as the pandemic abated a little bit. There's something behaviorally going on with American driving, both in substance abuse, but maybe more aggression that is producing a really remarkable rise in deaths on the road. But what do you see in this, Jeremy, and how does this relate to our topic today? I think there's definitely a lot of aggression that's being channeled into how people interact with transportation. I'd like to point to the Dodge Challenger as an interesting window into American society. Over the past few years, the Dodge Challenger has generally trailed the Ford Mustang and the Chevy Camaro in sales. And recently, the Dodge Challenger has begun to outperform the Camaro and the Mustang in sales. And if you take a look at some of the names of the trim levels available on the Dodge Challenger, I think it helps explain 
why the Challenger has been so successful. I'm just going to read through a few of the trim levels that are available. You can get a Dodge Challenger Hellcat. You can get a Dodge Challenger Scat Pack. You can get a Dodge Challenger Hellcat Red Eye Widebody. You can get a Dodge Challenger SRT Jailbreak. These names, I'm sure, are a reflection of very sophisticated marketing analysis that Stellantis has done and the Dodge brand has done. And I think it's showing us that there's at least a segment of the American consumer population that has a lot of adrenaline and that has a lot of aggression. Let's take another look at the automotive sector in a completely different way. Let's take a look at the Toyota RAV4, in many ways the opposite of the Dodge Challenger. The Toyota RAV4 has grown in size 34% in less than two decades. It seems that not only do some American consumers want a lot of adrenaline and aggression in their vehicles, other Americans want a lot of size. They want protection. They want their vehicle to defend them from the rest of society, from the rest of traffic. And so you have vehicles growing in size. So, Jeremy, I want to focus on the security point, which I think is very, very important. One, I think, telling statistic is the growth in security products that were sold to Americans. And that growth became clear even before the pandemic and the social disruptions that occurred during the pandemic. So, for example, if you look at the 2018 to 2019 period, sales of Ring home security products increased year over year by 180%. So, again, this was before the crime spike of 2020-2021. Something was clearly stirring within the American people, this sense of vulnerability, of danger, of the need to protect themselves before it became quite so clear in the events during COVID-19. So when we look at the evidence that you cited, Jeremy, on consumer products favored by the American people, we look at the transportation and the crime statistics. We look at behavior within the transportation system. There's a lot that's pointing toward this idea of declining trust between and among citizens. And I think that has been amplified by these incidents captured on social media. And I would point to this brawl that occurred at a Golden Corral restaurant in Pennsylvania over a steak or over the restaurant running out of certain offerings. But the video is deeply disturbing. You know, a brawl involving 40 people throwing chairs, throwing punches at a mainstream American restaurant in Pennsylvania Again, of course, we've had examples, many, of you know, violence and disturbances inside of all kinds of retail and restaurant establishments, but it seems like something is going on where there is more common mass violence, people's tempers are really on edge, and there's something more profound that's occurring. And again, we so take for granted this idea of trust, particularly trust in the public square, that I think we tend to overlook the profound implications of declining trust if, in fact, it is declining. There's a relationship between lawlessness and trust. I think that historically in the United States, people were trusted to do the right thing. In a grocery store, people were trusted to pay when they exited. And most large stores historically did not have someone at the front door checking receipts to make sure that everything in your bag was exactly what you had paid for. There was just trust in the average consumer. And with all the news about shoplifting, especially in certain large cities, 
I think it's a sign and an accelerant of decreasing trust. The National Retail Federation has indicated that 64% of loss prevention professionals, that is to say, employees of retailers who deal with theft on a day-to-day basis, are concerned or increasingly concerned about organized retail crime. What makes retail crime particularly interesting is that in many communities in the United States that were built after World War II, there is no civic space. There is no town square in your average suburb built in the 1960s or 1970s. There's no gathering point for people from all walks of life except for the shopping center or the commercial strip. And it has been remarked upon time and time again that certain big box retailers effectively function as town squares for many towns across America. And the fact that theft on such a wide scale is happening in these places, it's not just a blow to the publicly traded companies that are selling the goods, but to the sense of these places as civic places, not just transactional places engaged in commerce. And I think that's missed in so much of the conversation around organized retail crime. If you don't have a town square, if you don't live in western Massachusetts or somewhere in New England, the retailer is your town square. And I think the common analysis that the higher crime rates and similar antisocial behavior follows decriminalization, it very well may be possible that decriminalization is just recognizing the reality of greater chaos and law enforcement is simply unable to keep up with it. So decriminalization becomes an effective accommodation of behavior that can't be easily stopped or stopped at all. One interesting data point where the D.C. area might be a leading indicator rather than a laggard of the national trend is the prevalence of home security cameras, especially doorbells, video doorbells, on the homes of residents of D.C. You could say that is because of concerns about package theft with the rise of e-commerce. But what's so interesting is that for many years now, the District of Columbia government has had a program called something like the Camera Security Camera Incentive Program that will provide residents with up to $500 of reimbursement for purchases of home security cameras. You don't have to agree to provide footage to the Metropolitan Police Department, but you do have to make it known to the Metropolitan Police Department that you have put up a camera in such and such a location so that they have the ability to turn to you and ask, if there is a crime, would you share your footage with us? And I think part of what that suggests is that public policy and government initiatives have, in a sense, encouraged greater mistrust and concern about personal security. And one national example that comes to mind, Jonathan, and I think is indicative of some of the mistrust we see in financial services and the enthusiasm for cryptocurrency and the like, has been the decade-long focus of many people on stock trading by members of Congress. And the predominating concern beside trying to prohibit stock trading by members of Congress and now federal judges and federal reserve officials has been to gain more transparency into what they are doing. And I think there's a relationship between your average opinion leader's 
desire to get more transparency into stock trading by government officials and some of the more mass examples we've discussed of mistrust in society. The more that the population does not trust policymakers and the government encourages mistrust, the more we see mistrust result in things like the image we have on our new political risk brief. So, Johnny, your point is that in a society where we have a decreasing confidence in the ability of our fellow citizen to exert self-restraint, transparency becomes a substitute in reaction to that lack of trust in our fellow citizen. Yes. What's interesting about the phenomenon that Johnny was describing about people installing cameras on their own private property is that it's an American evolution of a phenomenon that other countries have already seen where countries like China have a lot of surveillance cameras that are put in place by the government. I remember that years ago, there used to be a lot of interest in U.S. media about London and the number of surveillance cameras that law enforcement in London had put up. And it seems like the American version of this phenomenon is not that the government is surveilling, although the government may be surveilling, but it's that private citizens are surveilling because private citizens not only perhaps do not trust one another, but also do not trust the government and do not trust law enforcement. So they're taking as much as possible into their own hands, including surveillance. I think where we see this, Jeremy, interestingly, is in new construction of federal buildings. I took a look at some of the federal courthouses that have been constructed recently or under construction commissioned by the General Services Administration, GSA. And it seems like they are one of two varieties. If you look at the new federal courthouse, a relatively new federal courthouse in Los Angeles, it is a glass box. And the prevalence of glass in so much of commercial architecture is trying to encourage transparency. But obviously, when you encourage transparency, it raises the question of, Why are you trying to encourage transparency? Is it because there is some sort of other phenomenon such as lack of trust that you are trying to counteract? That would be one. And then if you look at, for example, the federal courthouse that's under construction in Des Moines, Iowa, it has more of the feel of the fortress, the American embassy-type facility built since the Kenya and Tanzania, the Nairobi and Dar es Salaam embassy bombings. And I think neither of those examples evidences great civic trust or communal trust. And in fact, if you look at the descriptions of those facilities by the architects or by the architectural firms, by GSA, there's no mention of any kind of virtue like trust. There's a lot of focus on the construction, its environmental impact, the use of the facility by different federal agencies. But there is not, beside passing mentions of openness to surroundings, there is no sense of trust as a civic virtue that is in decline and needs to be cultivated for there to be a diminishment of some of these awful episodes we're seeing. And the question is, so why does this matter? I mean, it's obvious why it matters on one level, but I think we can turn to the Inter-American Development Bank, which looked at the question of trust or the lack of trust internationally. And in one of their reports, they make the point that in an environment characterized by low trust, quote, entrepreneurs struggle to start new enterprises when suppliers, customers, and government do not trust them to pay for their inputs. 
And this is a long way of saying that the trust in dynamism that characterizes American capitalism is impossible in an environment that lacks the perceived reliability between citizens, between people that are either conducting commerce or conducting a relationship. We don't trust institutions to clear our transactions. Instead, we trust a blockchain mechanism to clear our transactions. What you described, Jonathan, is, I think, characteristic of a lot of the enthusiasm for cryptocurrency, that large institutions, large banks should not be clearing transactions between individuals, but some kind of atomistic phenomenon abstracted from human interaction should run things. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Johnny. And by the way, the whole trend of people not trusting fiat currency could have manifested itself in greater gold ownership. You could have had people go out and acquire more privately held gold and figured out how to transact that way, but it didn't manifest itself that way. To your point, it ended up being in these disintermediated clearings of transactions that don't rely upon humans. And so I think, again, that's a very, very intriguing potentially example of how a lack of trust can undermine all sorts of institutions and in ways that are not obvious. I'd like to look at some of the comments that Michael Moore, chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, made. He said, The the loss of jobs, the loss of people's uh, source of income, of their stability, of their home, uh, of just a a sense of crisis that they're in. Uh, We've seen a dramatic increase, historic increase in the number of gun sales. What's interesting about his comments, I'd, I'd like to focus on his use of the term, a sense of crisis that they're in. People feel like they're in a crisis. When people feel like they're in a crisis, they behave differently than when they feel like they're in normal times, whatever that means. And I think if you look at how people behave, there are all sorts of interesting manifestations of this sense of crisis. If you look at people's use of media, for example, people's media consumption, whether it's social media or traditional media, in a crisis, people need to know what's happening. And so they probably use media a lot more. So there's tremendous media use over the past couple of years. And that not only is a consequence of people's sense that they're in a crisis, but also feeds into their sense that they're in a crisis. So I wonder whether we're stuck in some kind of loop that's difficult to exit from, where the sense of crisis feeds upon itself, and there's this kind of frenzy in the American population, which I think is probably already having consequences for the political system. Moreover, it may be that at a certain fundamental level, people are right, that people in their lives note declining human capital. They observe the terrible opioid epidemic, antisocial behavior, incidents of violence, and they conclude that, in fact, more than before, the counterparty in an interaction is less trustworthy. And that's not an irrational, necessarily, response. That could be a very rational, fact-based, experientially-based conclusion, which in some ways is the most disturbing thing. It's one thing if people have misperceptions that can be corrected, But when people are actually accurate in their assessment, that's a more difficult thing to address. And I think that some of the technological trends over the past decade really amplify all of this. I'd like to draw attention to comments that Francis Fukuyama made. He's famously known as the author of The End of History and The Last Man. He's the author of Trust, The Social Virtues, and The Creation of Prosperity. And he says... 
Virtually everything is the result of the social collaboration of human beings. And it seems to me uh, obvious and commonsensical that if those human beings have a high degree of trust for one another, if they believe in one another's basic honesty and reliability, that they will be able to do things more efficiently than in a society in which distrust is prevalent. Uh, in the latter form of society, uh, you need to regulate your relations with other people by a whole set of formal rules. You need to write contracts. You need to litigate. Uh, you need to have enforcement in order to settle disputes. And it imposes a whole series of costs that a high-trust society uh, does not need to pay. As Francis Fukuyama says, virtually everything is the result of social collaboration of human beings. How are people supposed to respond when society and especially tech elites have been telling them for years and a decade now, or more than a decade, that our primary goal should be artificial intelligence? In other words, instead of collaboration between human beings, we should be trying to remove the human being from the equation and replace the human being with artificial intelligence. And this goes beyond workplace automation, all the labor displacement concerns, which are very important. But there's a broader concept of what we as a society should be aiming for. And if the future objective is defined as including a lot of artificial intelligence, people are told that their intelligence should not be relied upon and that they should not rely on other people's intelligence and that the gold standard should be artificial intelligence, not human intelligence. So if we're right about this significant decline in trust, that I think makes possible a number of futures of scenarios for what America looks like in a lower trust context. And I'd like to turn this part of the episode to those futures. And Jeremy, you do quite a bit of work on imagining alternative futures and what they might mean for the country. And so I know your observations here will be very important. And I'm going to mention one, and I'd like you to give your thoughts. Uh, so one possible future, and by these things can coexist, of course, and often will coexist if, if we're correct, is the idea of fortress America, that we move to a society of openness and transparency and ease of mobility to something other than that. And Jeremy, in your mind, what does that look like and what could be some of the outcomes? So I think that we can imagine a future in which people are trying to insulate themselves from the rest of society. And I think you could see it at a micro level. You see Mark Zuckerberg and other business leaders building modern day fortresses, sometimes on islands in Hawaii, sometimes elsewhere. Large walls are a common theme, sometimes even moats. And so I think at a micro level, you'll see these mini fortresses, and then you'll see it at larger levels. You'll have perhaps more gated communities and other ways in which people will physically try to separate themselves. And we'll end up with a society in which there's much more physical separation and something more akin to what you might see in China today, for example. So there are a few examples of that, Jeremy, that I think could be quite possible. One is the privatization of public spaces. So where in the past we had public parks, we had public swimming pools, we had all these public facilities, those will be privatized and effectively gated to avoid or reduce antisocial behavior. We've already seen some of this unfold in recent years. I think that could accelerate quite dramatically. Second, I think it's important to watch for what Johnny mentioned about changes to architecture. I think it's very possible the age of glass is going to come to an end. As someone has called it, I think, glassaholics, that will abate. And we're going to enter an era of much more you know, sturdier, harsher, more fortified architecture and construction. Another thing that I want to posit is changes in transportation. 
I think the automation or the rise of autonomous vehicles very likely could happen in the air before it happens on the ground, right? So autonomous vehicles on the ground still are vulnerable to criminal behavior. But if you take autonomous passenger drones in the sky, those really are symbolically and, in fact, physically removed from the terrestrial environment and provide much greater safety, security, and in some ways reliability in a more chaotic world. So given the rising complexity of the terrestrial environment, I can imagine a world where autonomous drones, both for cargo delivery as well as for passengers, accelerates much more quickly than I think has been commonly assumed. And that's a trend that I think we should very much watch for. Another category of a future scenario is what we call in the written brief, membership as the modern moat. This idea really explores how in the retail space, in the commercial space, companies will create private, secure, bespoke experiences that no longer have shopping and other forms of retail as a public activity, right? The classic American mall, which is really a it's a private space, but it is open to the public and very much feels like a public experience, that becomes, again, privatized. It becomes secluded. It becomes secured. We've seen some of this already during the COVID lockdowns with high-end luxury retailers because of, of looting activity, closing off their stores by appointment only, moving to that system, which, again, could have very important ramifications for stratification of society, the access of people to luxury goods, how people view brands, and that's a huge change in the American retail landscape. Certain brick-and-mortar retailers already require an annual membership to even set foot into the store. So if you want to go shop at Costco, for example, you need to be a Costco member. It would be interesting to see if in the next few years, do you see more retailers adopting that model where you can't just walk into a store? You have to first pay for the privilege of walking down the aisles and seeing if there's anything you'd like to buy. I think more and more of the consumer economy is going to be based on the frequent flyer model, which is the people who I know to be trusted, the people with whom I've interacted and have proven themselves as reliable counterparties, they will be privileged. And dealing with those who are unproven is just too messy and uncertain and potentially costly. I'm just going to focus on the people evidence shows, proves I can trust. And that has, I think, very, very important implications. We've seen a little bit of this. I mentioned frequent flyers. If you look at new aircraft that are in the planning stages or purchases of aircraft fleets, more premium seats, expanded business class sections as travelers maybe try to separate themselves from the chaos of the economy cabin. So we've already seen some of that emerging in the airline sector, and I think that is a trend that will accelerate. Both of these scenarios that you described, Jonathan, make me think of Brazil, a country that I've had the privilege to visit, a country that is like the United States in many ways and I think also embodies the quote from Paul Johnson that you read at the beginning of this episode, a really rich, innovative, boisterous, friendly country. You describe is characteristic of life in Brazil where the affluent live in fortresses, and there is concern, fear, anxiety about behaviors like wearing jewelry in public places. People take off their watches and wedding bands and engagement rings, and not just if the watches are Rolexes and Omegas. And what's interesting to me is many Brazilians, I think, think of their country as having reached its apogee in the late 19th century under Dom Pedro II, the Brazilian emperor, who I believe was an abolitionist and a promoter of reform in Brazil against the 
coffee plantation owners, et cetera. And I think what this behavior that we've talked about points to is that many Americans see the country as having passed the point of peak success. And I don't think it's a surprise that we are now one generation, basically 25 years removed from the apogee of American power after the Cold War around the time of the dot-com bubble, late 90s. And I think that a sense of that decline has had a major psychic effect on Americans overall. One of the economists who I follow, Lacey Hunt of Hoisington Investment Management, makes the point that real per capita GDP growth per annum from the founding of the republic to the late 1990s was about 2.5%. And since then, it has declined in half. It's now 1 to 1.1, 1.2%. I forget the exact number, but it's something in that ballpark. I think that's an indication that something has changed in American society over the last 25 years, and it's being channeled, it's being embodied by this growing mistrust. There's a sense that things have gone wrong, and the way that people know how to relate to that is to engage in more aggressive behaviors in public spaces. A third scenario for the future of the country is what we call surveil first, trust later. And this describes the point we mentioned a moment ago about favoring trusted parties, favoring counterparties who have demonstrated themselves to be reliable. And if that becomes a focus of American commercial life and the public square, that is going to incentivize, it is going to increase demand for surveillance. Not just physical surveillance, but things akin to social credit scores, things that measure people's reliability in all kinds of different ways. We have some of that now, of course, and I'm not speaking, of course, simply of people's credit scores, but all kinds of surveillance of employees and eye tracking and monitoring in efforts to combat theft and fraud and other behavior. And this is akin to the, the email spam filter being based on Bayesian inference being taken into interpersonal interaction where if you've never emailed the person before, and you send the email at an odd time, the email is going to go into the spam filter, depending on how finely calibrated it is. And similarly, if you're not known to your counterparty, you're not going to be able to execute the transaction. I think that's what we're seeing. And one of the features of the modern airport, as anybody who travels a lot knows, is clear. And clear allows you to get through security in that whole process. It could take anywhere from 20 minutes to half an hour to more, depending on how busy the airport is, to a matter of a few minutes. And in fact, the company that offers clear in airports is expanding that service to other venues beyond airports. And you can see a world where everything has some kind of clear-like technology that is qualifying a person before they enter the space. They have to be in some kind of clear database before they're allowed into the store, into the entertainment venue, into whatever space is in question. And again, that means that the people who gain access are privileged and those don't become increasingly alienated. And here again, we see the influence of public policy. The individuals leading the discussion around cybersecurity in this country for the last five years have been focused on zero trust environment, not when speaking of defending a government computer network, not trusting any of the actors in the network, assuming that they might be hackers from Russia or the People's Republic of China, and only providing access on the network to people who are known in some way as good actors. And I think 
this is a embodiment on a social level of that outlook that has been increasingly prevalent in government. I would like to point to a practical day-to-day manifestation of this theme of surveil first, trust later. When people are confronted with something that seems unusual, strange, even threatening, what do they do? They pull out their cell phone. They turn on a video recording. So there's this phenomenon of crime scenes in the United States where bystanders are focused on recording video rather than doing anything about it. So I think in this future world of surveil first, trust later, one can envision a lot of surveillance and not very much action because the focus is on the surveillance. Moving to our fourth possible future, a fourth scenario of how declining trust could impact American civilization is the political dimension and what we describe as an anonymous insurgency. So it is very possible in our view that as we get into this world, this environment characterized increasingly by mistrust, and as people fortify, as they retreat to these moated, protected spheres, as they want assurances about their counterparty as a condition of doing business or of interacting, that could create very easily, one can imagine, an enormous backlash. And if people are looking to strike back, if they feel that they're on the wrong side of the moat, if they feel that they don't have the access because they're not, for whatever reason, a trusted party, the most powerful expression of that alienation, of that frustration, will be the secret ballot, which is the one thing that is unlikely to be surveilled in American civilization. And so one can imagine in an environment of lower and lower trust where people are more and more frustrated, mass consumers are more and more frustrated by the consequences of that lack of trust, that there could very easily be fueled a populist resentment that is expressed at the ballot box. And we've seen some early evidence of this. I think 2016 is some evidence of it. I think the elections last year in Virginia and New Jersey in particular gave us a sense that working class voters resented some of the restrictions, some of the constraints of the COVID era and were pushing back. And so that is something I think that is important to watch very, very carefully. Does the secret ballot become people's private way of revolting against a consumer-driven surveillance state, revolting against membership, putting up barriers to commerce and movement, giving them a way of opposing the fortification of America? Well, I want to thank you, Johnny and Jeremy, for another terrific conversation. I want to thank you, the audience, for joining us for this episode. You can go to our website, as been mentioned, baronpa.com in the library section for the written version of this brief. We encourage you and your friends to subscribe to this podcast. Please share it with people you know. And we look forward to having you join us for a future episode of The Political Risk Brief.